If you'd open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 17 and 18. I'm going to begin back in verse 16 only to provide some context to where Paul is going in this verse. Beginning in verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we approach this text, and I haven't really talked at great length about this, we've been trying to allow the Jew-Gentile distinction that the text is clearly talking about to permeate us. And I've really wanted us to think about that over the last few weeks, the theology that's being taught here. But I want us to consider at this point the implications of that in some ways as to how this begins to impact our world. The realities of fear, prejudice, suspicion, ethnic division, and hostility are all realities that this text that we've been looking at over the past few weeks is dealing with. It it cuts to the bone. It cuts to the marrow. It goes right to the heart of the matters that are going on in the lives of human beings in this world. It goes right to the heart of the matters that are going on with people in this congregation. Because in every one of us, lest we doubt ourselves, there is a level of suspicion. There is a level of pride. There is a level of arrogance. There is the reality of division and prejudice. It permeates us. And even though many of us would like to think that it's not there or I'm above that, the reality is no matter what our ethnic heritage, no matter what our upbringing, these are things we struggle with all our lives. We all, and I mean everybody in this room, struggle with the those people mentality. It doesn't matter what our ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what our socioeconomic background is. I've been in the woods of Arkansas with some fine men who, riding on their four-wheel drives and drinking their Budweiser, would always talk about them people up on that hill out there by the lake. And sitting on a ski boat out there on the lake, because my parents were one of them people living up on the hill, (laughs) would listen to other people talk about them people out there riding their four-wheel drives, drinking their Budweiser's. This is a reality that permeates all of us. And what I want us to see, and I don't want to dwell on this so much this morning, but I want you to begin to see that somehow this begins to drive into your hearts This isn't just a nice theological thing that we can swirl around in our heads and put up on the mantle and dust off occasionally like a trophy that we've achieved. We now understand how the law works between the New and the Old Testament. We now understand how Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled. Beautiful. So what does that look like? And the reason why I want us to begin to think about that is because that's exactly what Paul is trying to get you to begin to think about now. What's happening Because this has happened. What's going on? This great event of the cross that he speaks about in verse 16 now begins to move out and do something. And we need to begin to come to grips with that. It is not sufficient for us just to say 
We comprehend these things. Somehow the comprehension of it moves us and motivates us, directs us and guides us, calls us and pursues us, and enables us. And we need to believe this, and we need to come to terms with it as we think about this. Paul, having declared then that Jesus has broken down the walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile, having made us into the one new humanity and bringing about reconciliation by his atoning and wrath-bearing death on the cross, now turns to declare the ongoing realities of this event for us to remember. And I want you to remember that the overarching verb of this whole section of chapter 2 is remember. I hope you haven't forgotten, because I'm going to keep telling you to remember. I love Second Peter, because in one place there, Peter says, I'm not writing you because you don't know these things. I'm writing you to stir you up by way of reminder. It's beautiful, because it once again tells us that we, it is not sufficient to have heard the gospel once and said, glad I got that squared away. It is rather a recognition that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, which is a whole life's process. And so as we look at this, then, I want us to think about these things. We, therefore, need to remember the message of peace, remember the preacher of peace, and remember the access of peace. And we need to remember it actively, savoring it as we consider it this morning. So let's first consider the message of peace. We need to see in this passage that Paul makes a distinction between the actual events of the gospel and the message itself. And you'll notice here that if you look at this text, it says in verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The idea here is not to merge the events that happened in verse 16 and saying because Christ did these events that that somehow is now what Paul is talking about. Paul says these events happened and therefore the reality of what happened began to be proclaimed. That this event that took place began to see real change. The message somehow becomes effective and sufficient for bringing men and women to faith in Christ and that that faith in Christ is not just some personal thing that you hide away. I mean, as the old song says, hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine, right? This little gospel light of mine. The point here is that what he's saying is that when the gospel breaks into people's lives, something is taking place and changing. When this preaching goes on, this event of preaching, the reality of the gospel is pouring forth and things are happening. But it's because of the event of Christ Jesus. And that's why we talk about savoring the work and worth of Christ. See, if we really want to see God's glory extended in this valley, we have to become people that don't just know the gospel. We have to be people that savor the gospel. We have to be people who are overwhelmed day in and day out and come anew and refreshed with the realities of what Christ has done for us. And that's what Paul now says this reality that's taken place now becomes a message of proclamation. And in other parts of the New Testament, you read that Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The interesting thing in this text is he's reversed that, and we'll talk about that now as we look at this. 
This passage is wedded to verses from Isaiah. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read them to you. One of them was in our call to worship this morning, at least the beginning verse. It's how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then in Isaiah 57, verses 18 and 19, he says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Isn't that just a fantastic statement? Do you see the hope of that statement? I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. God's not overwhelmed with Israel's sin and saying, oh, well, you know, they've done the best they can. He rather says, no, I see them clearly. They're utter failures. They stink. They're putrid. But I will heal them. And then he goes on to say this. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. Now it's interesting in the book of Acts, as we consider this, maybe it helps us, that when Peter preaches about the healing of the man before the, the beautiful gate, he uses the term salvation, and yet in our Bibles it's translated he was healed. But it could also be saying there he was saved. And see, in the Scriptures, the understanding of well-being that one sees physically is actually supposed to be a sign of a greater reality, which is the restoration of the soul. See, this is the great horror of death, is that what happens is the body and the soul are rent asunder. And what we see in the resurrection is the reality that the body and the soul are reunited in perfect union. And we also see that that union, as Paul's already told us, is the reality that we are united to Christ and therefore have access to God. So what I want us to see here then is that the Old Testament idea of peace is shalom. And shalom is not some cool hippie phrase of, hey, shalom, dude, or peace out, or all these things that one might see in our culture, which is why I said, think about what you mean by peace. What does that mean? Because the Bible has a very clear understanding of what peace is. Peace is a sense of well-being. It is not only the sense of well-being, it is a state of well-being. A state of wholeness. A state of revival. A state of renewal. A state of restoration. When someone would walk into a home of an Israelite, what was supposed to happen is that when they would hear the word shalom, it was supposed to mean, here's food ample for your restoration. Here's water to wash away the dust of the road. Here's oil to perfume and anoint your head to remove the, the stench of the road. See, shalom, peace, wellness, wholeness. That's what Scripture is speaking of here. The message of wholeness, wellness, goodness, revived souls. And so somehow as we begin to look at this text, we have to begin to once again get caught up in the reality of what's taking place here. Because listen to what Paul says. He says the language that Paul uses here is Christ is our peace. Not that Christ 
gives us peace. Think about how powerful that language is. Peace is not something we're trying to get. Peace is something that we have if we're united to Christ. And it's not something we have like, again, it's something we can, can grab hold of and say, well, here's my peace of peace. But rather it is to be united to Christ is to be at peace. It permeates my whole being. It permeates my whole reality. It creates for me a different way of looking and existing on planet Earth, no matter what my circumstances are. See, somehow as a Christian, if you have a wreck, somehow you shouldn't just say, well, I ought to operate differently because I'm a Christian. It ought to be that because of the reality that you remember, I live in a different sphere. The realities of what take, are taking place to me isn't different than the guy who's an unbeliever who hit me or that I hit. But the reality is, is that I exist in a whole different realm of peace. And somehow that has to begin to transform our thinking about ourselves. Because see, again, remember, the human heart is prone to fear and to fret. It's prone to rise up in pride. To look at itself not with the humility of a risen Savior, but the arrogance of how dare you do that to me. And men and women, this goes on in our church. Our, ch- our church, not thus the church, our church. And it ought not be so. Why? Because we have been brought into the reality of peace. Not just being people who can externally act like we're at peace. See, that's what I'm trying to wrestle against. There are people who can put on peace. It's just like people who say, well, you know, I ought to say I forgive you and you ought to say you forgive me. And so let's say I forgive you and you forgive me. But do we really do that? Or do we hold grudges? Do we sink them away deep in our hearts? See, are we really people who are at peace? We live in peace. Are we people who are still hostile, who still are living and dwelling in the land of unbelief when the reality of Christ has broken in all around us. That's what's going on as Paul talks here. He came and preached peace. That's what we're called to in this midst. Somehow, when we gather together and people come into our midst, they ought to say, they do some weird stuff. They don't necessarily sing the kind of things that we sing. But somehow there's something there that I want. And see, men and women, when we aren't people who are grasping and driving and striving to see the beauty of the peace Christ brings to us, then there's nothing here for anybody. It's just another social gathering. It's just another place where You're getting your thing, and, you know, I go out to the glee club and get my thing. But see, there's reality going on here. And we need to believe that. And we need to believe that when we do have conflict and when we do have strife, that the peace of Christ is greater than all our conflict and sin. And we should run once again to the cross and believe that we have hope and forgiveness. That's what Paul is saying when he talks about the message 
of peace. Now then, we need to look at the fact of who's doing the preaching here. We see in this text that it tells us, and he came and preached peace. Who's the he? Well, you might say, well, Dennis, you went to seminary, brother. You got two master's degrees and you don't know who the he is. No, I'm asking us to think about who the he is because it's important for us to consider it again. The two questions that are raised by this particular thing is who is preaching and when did this preaching take place? And I don't want to answer so much the who first. I want to answer the when first and then we'll maybe get a bigger picture of the who. Some people say that when this was going on, if we look at the context here, we see verse 16 and it says that Jesus reconciled both of these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. And some want to say is that that idea is, is that Christ on the cross, the very reality of the cross was his preaching of peace. And I think just the sheer language of this text most of you are, are decent enough at grammar to figure out that came is, is a past, you know, he came. So it has to be after this thing he did, then he came and preached peace. So we can somewhat remove that. But you will read commentaries if you dabble in those things that will say, no, that's what's going on. I don't think so. I think the text leads us away from that and draws us to a different conclusion. The first idea here is, is that it's he's after his resurrection, right? He came. He rose from the dead, and after that he came, and he stood in the midst of the disciples, and he, he said, Peace to you. John records this for us, and so does Luke in chapter 24. I believe it's John 20, where both of these events take place, and he appears in the upper room and says, Peace to you. And so the reality here is that we can at least say, yes, he was preaching in the resurrection, but the question then is, is that, is that all? See, Paul seems to be taking us to a place of saying that it's not just Jesus preaching there, but this reality continued to go on. And I want you just to turn to the book of Acts. Just turn to the last chapter of Acts really quickly, and I want you just to read what Acts says here. We're going to get there eventually. We're reading through Acts. We're getting close. Acts chapter 28. Look at verse 30 and 31. Listen to what it says there. This is speaking about Paul. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, there's a, a situation here where we have to say Paul's whole life was one big hindrance. At least it sure looks that way. But do you see how Acts ends? Acts says that all these trifles of human interference are not hindrances. At best, they're little low speed bumps. They're not the big speed bumps. You know, you go through some neighborhoods in Tucson, and if you're not paying attention, like at the Boyers, if you ever go to their place, be careful because you'll come down there and all of a sudden you're launched into air and you've got some sparks coming out the bottom of your car and you're probably heading to Midas. But, but the point that I want you to get at here is, is that they're minor little bips as you're going down the highway. They're little pebbles. See, the idea that Luke wants you to get out of Acts is, is that Paul preached the gospel without hindrance. Why? Because Paul's a great preacher? Probably so. 
But it's, that's not sufficient. It's because somebody is preaching through Paul. See, what we need to begin to recapture, men and women, is an understanding that Christ has not stopped preaching. See, if we start asking the question, when did Christ preach? The answer has to be, well, when did He stop? Because the book of Acts suggests that Jesus, through His apostles, continued to preach the Gospel. And the foundation of the church was being laid, which is exactly what Paul is telling us and is going to tell us in the next few verses. This foundation is being laid. The reality of what's happening. But Christ is the main preacher. We're taught this in our shorter catechism when it talks about Jesus being a prophet. Many of us don't have any problem believing that Jesus is our priest. He intercedes for us right now. He's praying for us. We go, yeah, isn't that sweet and that wonderful? Jesus prays for us. We have no problem believing that Jesus is our king, you know, because we know that he subdued us to himself. He's ruling and reigning over us. And we have this great hope that he will defeat all his and our enemies one day. And we go, amen, brother. But do we still believe that Jesus has a prophetic ministry among us? Is it just the words of men flowing from pulpits across America and around the world? Is it just merely this Joe standing up there? Because I want to tell you, men and women, if it's just me standing up here, we all need to live in fear. And that's not to say that every single thing I say is exactly right on the money. But what we do believe is that Jesus has not left himself without a witness precisely because he still preaches through frail jars of clay and broken jars at that. But he preaches. And what Paul is saying here in this passage is the reality that Jesus came and continues to preach to his people. I want you to turn over to Romans 10. I know we're doing some Bible hopping today, but that's not bad to stick our noses in God's Word. It's a benefit to us, and we see how it's all fitting together, which is helpful. Romans chapter 10. I want you to look at verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 17. And I want you just to get the picture of what Paul's saying to us, and we'll see that he is actually preaching and teaching this in Ephesians as well. So he asked this question beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So here he is again. He's talking about the ministry of the word and what's happening between Jews and Greeks. So we see that there's a con context that's linked together. But he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We just heard this link back in Ephesians. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Not the word about Christ. 
Not the Word concerning Christ. The Word of Christ. Christ's words to His people. His preaching. His proclamation. So that when we send people like the McMahons, when we send men and women to the, or we send men to the campus, or we send men and women out to do translation of the things, what we believe is this, that when a preacher stands up to proclaim that word, Christ is preaching to his people. Not merely that man. And as I said before, part of the reason why we have to know this is because Dennis Hermerding needs to sit under the ministry of the word. Not just you all. And how often do I get to sit under the ministry of the Word if it's the preaching event, if it's somehow not someone preaching to me and through me? I rarely sit under the preaching of the Word if that's the case. See, the logic has to tell you that the ministry of the Word is not just to you, it's to me. It's to us. Christ preaches to us. And I've been listening to Him preach this passage all week long. So if you would all feel somewhat convicted, double that by a hundred times. Because I've been wrestling and thinking through this all week. Because see, it reminds me, Dennis, this is no trivial thing going on on Sunday mornings. This is no trite act. This is no insignificant event. This is Christ, the resurrected and ascended Lord, speaking to His people. And somehow that has to grip our hearts and make us understand the privileges that we have. That we're not just sitting here to bide our time. But the reality is that God is powerfully working within us. And so when we come to church, we gather as a people, we come to see Christ break open the bread of heaven and feed His people. And we need to believe that the bread of heaven, even this morning, is speaking to His people. Now the last thing I want us to look at then, back in Ephesians chapter 2, is verse 18. For through Him we, have both, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This language is focused on us gaining access by means of another into the throne room or the most holy place. The idea that's used in classical Greek was is that if you got access, it was to go before a king. We want to add a little more to that because of the Old Testament understanding that the throne room of God was the very holy of holies in the temple. And for many of us who have possibly read the Gospels or at least heard them expounded to us before, know that that great event that takes place when Jesus says it is finished, when He cries out to Telestai on the cross, that great curtain which separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, was rent asunder from top to bottom to show us that it wasn't by human hands that it was done. And access was given to the people of God and to the very throne room of heaven. And not just the mock, if you will, not just the shadow of the throne room, as Paul's already said, that shadow has been fulfilled and gone away. No, the very reality of going into the heavenly places was opened up to people because of Christ's death on the cross. And this is why I say these things just every week. It's not just to hear myself say it. I really want you to begin to believe that what we do here on Sunday mornings is not insignificant. That when you bow your heads to pray at your house, that it's not insignificant. There is a reality that people apart from Christ do not have. They do not have access 
into the throne room of God. They can pray all they want to, but if they are not a part of Christ, if they have no access into the throne. And so we should see that not as something to be puffed up about, but rather something to humble us. We are not able to come on our own merit into that throne room, but rather we have been given access because of our union with Christ. Romans 5, the other place where this word access is used, says this in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. While Christ's death and our union with Him in death and life gives us access, this is also, I want us to go past this to see the Trinitarian reality that's going on here. Christ gives us access through His death. But it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the access is given to us to God the Father. And so we see that the reality of what God has done for us is to basically bring us to a place of access. And here's where I want to turn our last part of this sermon this morning to consider. I want you to remember back to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you're starting to see the power of what Paul's saying here. What I want you to consider is is that what God is telling us through His servant Paul, what Jesus is telling us this morning is, do you see how generous and beneficent my Father is? He has spared no expense to redeem you. He has spared no expense so that you might be called a child of the living God. This is why I find so many debates in our denomination and around this country futile and meaningless and purposelessness. I don't care what people have to say about adoption all over this world. I just care about what that means in the Bible. God spared no expense to make me like Jesus. In fact, He spent Jesus to save me. Somehow, men and women, we have to begin to see what a great treasure it is to have access to the Father. That the other two persons of the Trinity, one would lay down his life, become a human being and lay down his life, and the other person would come and indwell a less than perfect creation so that we might have access to the Father. And not only do they give us access, but they both pray for us. Both of them. Christ prays for us, the Scriptures tells us. And we are told in Romans 8 that the Spirit prays for us. Even when we don't know what to say for ourselves. I'm so beyond being able to know what the right thing to say is right now, God. And the Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. So you begin to see the privileges that are going on. Do you begin to see how much God has lavished us when He says, I put my mercy, I put my grace, I poured out my love on you. And somehow that has to sustain us. And I want to ask this question, does this 
Does this not energize us to worship? Does this not compel us to say, I'm willing to listen to that 6'4 guy stand up there week after week and hope that he continues to be faithful and pray for him to be faithful because Christ is speaking to me about all the things that He has done for me so that I could know His Father. Not only that I could heal the rift created by sin, but I would actually give them the privilege of being called the children of the living God. This should give us a great sense of love for God and should cause us to earnestly seek to love our brothers and sisters in this midst. See, if you really grasp this, somehow you have to look around you and say, these people are worth loving. How do I know that? Because God has poured out Christ on a cross to redeem them. And therefore, hatred of them, hostility towards them, anger towards them, roots of bitterness towards them is unacceptable. It has no place in the sphere of peace. And when I see it, I need to go to the thing that deals with it. The Gospel of Christ. Repent and believe. This should not be, the New Testament says, that there should be divisions among you. It should not be. And our only hope is, is that the prevalence of Christ and the peace that He unites us to wins out in our midst. And it will. And it is. But we ought not be trivializing of it. We ought to grab hold of it and pursue it as the people of God. In conclusion then, this message is for those who are far off. Which means that we're a missions-oriented church. Both locally and around this world. Because this message is for those who are far off. Far off from God and far off around the world. We need to be people who proclaim peace to our brothers and sisters who have not yet come into the fold. Because we have them. See, our doctrine does not leave us empty and just say, well, God will save them if they need saving. No, no, no. He says, no, you are my messengers. Go out and proclaim peace. And the reason why we need to remember this is so that we don't chain or cage the gospel, if that's possible, through our own fear, through our own fretting, through our own doubting, through our own despising. We need to again and again come back and look at what our dear shepherd, brother, husband, friend has done for us, is doing for us, and the access he has brought us into. Men and women, do you hear this morning peace to you? Peace to you. May God make this church family a place of peace. Amen.